This is Robotic Disclosure, the program that reveals everything you want to know about robotic surgery, robotic technology, and how to run a best practice robotic program for your hospital, your surgeons, and your patients. And now, here's your host, Josh Feldstein. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Ali Gomi. Dr. Gomi is Director of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic and Robotic Surgery at Sisters of Charity Hospital in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Gomi graduated from George Washington University, cum laude. He completed his obstetrics and gynecology residency at both Tufts University and the State University of New York at Buffalo. He also completed an advanced laparoscopic fellowship at the Women's Hospital of Texas in Houston. Dr. Gomi is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and is a nationally recognized minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon. He's published in many academic journals and educates surgeons in the field of robotic surgery. Dr. Gomi, it's great to have you on Robotic Disclosure today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Let's start off by talking about the advantages of robotic surgery versus laparoscopic surgery in your practice. What do you see as the major distinguishing characteristics between the two? So, Josh, that, that is an interesting question. Uh, as you know, I've been doing robots for almost a decade now, and I still ask myself that question, or I am asked from time to time that question. Why is it advantageous over laparoscopy? And I still have to think about it a little bit because, you know, you, you take certain things for granted, uh, especially once you do something for 10 years. Um, you know, and, and, and my answer continues to evolve. Um, but I think it boils down to if you were asked of me, I guess, the, you know, the, the, uh, the simplest or the most straightforward way to get the conversation going is if you were to ask me, Dr. Gomi, you know, if, if the robot were to go away from your practice, what would you do? Um, and the, the, the first answer that would come to my mind is I would not revert back to laparoscopy. And you know, and that meaning that I would have to compromise so many things that I have come to do as it pertains to surgery that I am not willing to go back to the old days. Um, and we can go through them, but you know, that that's, I think that would be a, a kind of an attention grabber, but my honest answer, and that kind of speaks volume, how how strongly I feel about the advantages of robotic surgery. Can you expand a little bit on that comment? Because that's a very compelling comment uh, that you would not it go is, back to laparoscopy. Yeah, so, we, so there's so many layers to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think on the surface, so, you know, the first layer on the surface is the obvious things that comes with the robotic technology. And uh, one of the biggest advantages is visualization. Uh, doing surgery. Uh, so typically, uh, as a robotic surgeon, we always enter a abdominal cavity uh, with a laparoscope. 
And I'm always reminded of how different it is in terms of resolution of the surgical field between the robotic scope or uh, the, the scope that the robot has and the technology that it, it, uh, it carries with it in terms of three-dimensional view versus a two-dimensional laparoscope. And I, I realize the laparoscopes have come a long way and we do now have three-dimensional uh, three laparoscopes with high definition. In my, in my mind, it's still not quite the same. So that's one big thing. And the second big thing, which is huge, um, is the fact that you sit at the console. So you're not at the mercy of someone holding the camera for you uh, who has some degree of intentional tremor. And that would be your assistant or the surgeon. Uh, if you're doing a complex surgery for hours, it's just a matter of time before that tremor causes fatigue of your hand or the assistant's hand. And I think it's just a drip, drip, drip of water that gets to a point that would interfere with uh, your attention span and your focus uh, on the surgery. So I guess I would, the, the second category would be stable platform for the robot. Uh, the, the instruments are uh, being held by the robotic arms and you, know, you don't have to move them uh, in a mechanical way as you would move them laparoscopically. So that's kind of a, this, the, the second big advantage. And thirdly would be the uh, dexterity and the range of motion of the instruments within the abdominal cavity. These instruments can move in 360 degrees, very similar to the motions that you would replicate using your wrists. And you, that allows you to get into certain places with the dexterity that a two-dimensional laparoscopic instrument would not afford you. Again, you know, in laparoscopic surgery has been around for quite some time, and we now have some degree of articulation when it comes to these laparoscopic devices. Again, it's not the same. Um, so I would say those are, on, on a first layer, those are the three big advantages, the dexterity of the instruments, the fact that it's a stable platform for, um, um, for stabilizing the instrumentation, and the visualization uh, is superior to a traditional laparoscopic surgery. Um, even if the, the current laparoscopic technology allows for the um, first two advantages to be, to approach um, or to become comparable, um, the third advantage, dexterity of the instruments. And the fact that you can maneuvers three instruments simultaneously within the abdominal cavity as opposed to your only two hands would also be a huge advantage. Um, and I'm just going to close in, uh, uh, by saying that it has made me quite independent of my assistant. Laparoscopic surgery, you rely quite a bit on your assistant who is operating on the other side of the patient to retract, to help with the robot, that dependency has lessened quite, quite a bit. Um, I still would like, to, I still have an assistant by the bedside, but they mainly involved in introducing sutures into the uh, abdominal cavity, 
uh, suction irrigates um, when needed. But I could operate on them. Um, I could operate without assistance, to be honest with you. It's, it has turned into a non-essential um, part of surgery. You know, thanks to robotic technology. You've just described a very, very interesting paradigm, a very powerful paradigm for surgeons to consider relative to the benefits of being robotic surgeons. And yet, uh, there still is resistance and reluctance on the part of many surgeons to become robotic surgeons. Why do you think the adoption of robotic surgery has not uh, occurred across the entire landscape of surgeons? And the second piece is, as the uh, director of, of a robotic program at Sisters of Charity Hospital, uh, what is the learning curve for robotic surgery looking like today? So those are great questions. Um, the first question has to do with human psyche and psychology. Um, surgeons are human, and surgeons, uh, you know, when you do surgery and you get good at doing a procedure a certain way, that becomes your comfort zone, uh, and you don't want to change. Uh, like, any, in, like any other activity, it's very similar to sports. If as a quarterback you throw the ball a certain way and you get another coach and the coach tells you that, hey, listen, you know, I, I see some areas that you can improve there's always that hesitancy. Do I really want to take on a new skill set? I mean, this has been working well for me. Same goes for if you're doing laparoscopic surgery or open surgery for a couple of decades. It's, it's very hard to convince yourself that, hey, listen, I'm going to put the time and the training to learn a new skill set, albeit you know, that would be minimally invasive. I'm convinced that it's better for the, for the patient care. But if I'm doing this laparoscopically, I'm already um, offering minimally invasive to these patients. So you always find a way to justify um, your approach. And that's how I felt when, when I was thinking about, okay, whether I should adapt robotic technology. Um, when I was doing when I was fellowship training in laparoscopic surgery. I was doing laparoscopic surgery for six years. I was very good at it. I had my own laparoscopic fellowship. Um, it, it was a very, um, I had to have a very honest conversation with myself. And somehow I got convinced that there were certain limitations of laparoscopic surgery that I could overcome um, using robotic technology. So, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's just a simple explanation. It's just human psyche, Josh, that uh, nobody wants to change. So in view of that, Ali, can you speak a little bit to the learning curve when a surgeon does make the commitment to change and they say, okay, I'm in my comfort zone uh, doing these lap procedures, but I do see the advantages that robotic surgery offers me as a surgeon and to the quality of outcomes to my patients. Uh, and they make the commitment to learn. Even with that commitment, what is the road that they face ahead of them? 
Right. So that's that's another excellent question that has me around from the very beginning of adoption of robotic technology. What is the learning curve? Actually, it goes back to laparoscopic procedures. What's the learning curve for lap cori or lap hysterectomy or anything else like that? Um, you know, initially, we tried to simplify the question by using certain parameters, such as complications, operative time, um, and both in laparoscopic literature and robotic literature, and we would come up with numbers such as 20, 30, 40. And there was a controversial article came out of Hopkins, I believe, regarding robotic prostatectomies. And the conclusion was maybe that number is closer to 500 or 1,000. The way I see it is, you know, it's, it's highly variable uh, on so many factors, um, including the, the surgeon's ability to be able to bridge that transition period from open or laparoscope to the robot. And it's different for everybody. Some people might get to that comfort zone after 10 cases, 20 cases, 50 cases. And I truly believe, based on my own observations, some people even uh, after 500 cases, they still haven't gotten to that green zone where we would call them proficient robotic surgeons, they still make a lot of unintended, uh, unforced errors during surgery and a lot of um, uh, movements and approaches that uh, would make their surgeries uh, inefficient. Um, Personally, you know, again, it's very hard for me to say, Josh, it's not 20, it's 50, it's not 50, it's 100. Um, I do believe there's a learning curve. Um, I do believe that operative time is a sensitive metric for that learning curve. I think the complications are relatively very low, both for laparoscope and robot. So you would have to look at a huge number to be able to comment uh, on proficiency just based on complication rate. Um, but just just to close, you know, I you know I have done probably six or 7,000 robotic surgeries, and I'm still getting better. Um, and again, I, I use the same analogy as in sports. Um, Tom Brady still is getting better. So I think the more you do, the better you get. I don't think maybe the plateau by which my learning curve is seen, uh, that learning curve is plateauing, but I think um, we all get better. It's a very, it's a very complex uh, question, um, but it's a definitely a question that needs to be pursued and discussed. You've made it sound almost like an algorithm, and, and I think that sounds like uh, a really, really uh, excellent way of displaying graphically in, in, our, in our listener's mind what we're dealing with here. But if you can extrapolate the fact that case volume is the key to quality and consistency, and when you see lower volume surgeons, you don't see the quality and you don't see the consistency, uh, it really speaks to the fact that for programs to have best practice in operation, you need to have high-volume surgeons doing the surgery. 
I, I totally agree. And I think the high volume, uh, the term high volume, I think is misunderstood. Um, I, I, I would replace it by minimal volume. I mean, a high volume in one's eyes would be minimum volume in my eyes. In, in other words, if you tell me that a high volume surgeon is 50 cases a year, I would say that's a minimum. That's a minimum volume. Uh, you know, in, in every, and outside medicine, in every other um, uh, profession that relies on performance, results, outcome, um, volume is a huge part of it. And that's why we all train for these tasks from aviation to sports to anything. You have to put in the hours. And I think that's just that muscle memory or conditioning the neurons in your brain. That, that is huge. Uh, I don't care if you're Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, you still have to train. And I think the robotic surgery in my mind has bring to the forefront what it takes to maintain proficiency in surgery. I, I do believe it, it's applicable to open and laparoscopic surgery, but I think it was never discussed in the past. Uh, but with the robot, with the fact that it is limited resources and we have become much more aware um, of, of these metrics of certain uh, issues that we have faced in terms of training surgeons, um, that learning curve has become to the forefront. Um, but I, I, I truly believe that it's like any other activity in life, that if you want to be proficient and good at it, it volume is a huge part of it. And um, again, it's just very similar to training for, for marathon or for triathlon. You got to put in the hours. And um, the days of, I'm a surgeon, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I don't need to practice anymore. I, I don't think those, those arguments hold true any longer. Let me ask you a question that takes us in a different direction, Dr. Gomi. When you think about leading a robotic program, you are now part administrator, part cheerleader, uh, part um, clinical uh, leader. What do you think are the major challenges that you face or that uh, programs face generally uh, when hospitals launch a robotic program. So if you could identify some of the key challenges that you think are most common, and does it vary working with independent surgeons versus employed surgeons when it comes to running a program? Yeah, I think one of the challenges we're facing is to um, educate our colleagues uh, to appreciate the concepts that we just spoke of, um, just to get them to appreciate how important volume is so they can reach their maximum proficiency so they can be a better surgeon for their patients. Um, unfortunately, conceptually, this is such a good uh, thing to discuss, but in reality, sometimes it's hard. If, if there's a surgeon in the community and they're used to doing a certain volume, and they are being asked that, hey, listen, your performance is not where it's supposed to be based on the metrics that we look at. How can we help you improve? Uh, well, one is simulation, which is great, and the other one is, well, you got to increase your volume, and that may not be a realistic expectation. So those are the dilemmas that we are facing from time to time, 
the biggest dilemma is how to afford opportunities to make a mediocre surgeon by any definition in terms of robotic metrics to become a better surgeon in terms of performance. All surgeons do great uh, in, our, in our system. Their safety profile is great. We're, that is not the issue. The issue is how we can, how we can improve their proficiency. Um, time is of essence. Uh, resources are limited. Robotic room or robotic rooms are one or two or three out of the whole robotic suites. Everybody's trying to get ahead to get to these robotic rooms to utilize the machinery. So it, it creates a bottleneck, and it's a constant struggle how to, how to move around these players and the surgeons, how to make them better, and how to use these limited resources in a much more efficient way. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing, um, I wouldn't call it a struggle, but uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to get everybody to appreciate um, those concepts and those challenges and buy into the, um, the goals that is set forth by the robotic committee and the, and the health system. Well, I think what you're describing is a mandate for governance and leadership. You know, you're saying, this is the pathway, guys. These are the steps you have to take, but we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep thinking about it. We have to keep measuring it. We have to keep improving. And if you don't have that consistency of governance and that consistency of programmatic leadership, uh, people will wander off and things will just plateau or descend and you're not going to get an achievement that you've just described. So it really speaks to the importance of having uh, a leadership and, and a team working together in robotic surgery. One thing we haven't talked about much is the robotic team in the OR. Uh, maybe you could speak a little bit about the role of the crew and how all that fits together. Oh, absolutely. And robotic crew is is essential part of my team and something that I have come to appreciate more and more as I have had the uh, privilege of working with the same consistent team. You know, initially early in my career, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't have uh, dedicated OR time, dedicated staff, dedicated team. And in recent years, that has not been the case. I've been fortunate enough to be able to work with the same team. And I am first to tell you that it's huge. As you know, there's so many moving parts in the robotic room, the setup, the instrumentations, the takedown, the turnover. These are huge, huge pieces and parts. And if there is any proficiency, if there's any infamiliarity with the, uh, with the protocol, with the procedures, Time is wasted, and 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 let's say if you have fifty different steps, if one you know wastes wastes about a minute per step, then that's you can see the turnovers turn longer, um, assistance, um, the, the, the uh, setting up the room, and you know and, and and the other big part of it the the harmony that. Um, gets compromised if if the team is not a, is is not the the stable or constant team and by harmony is uh 
the so-called karma. Um, I, I'm, again, I'm a big believer of, of that. Um, when I was younger, I didn't believe of didn't believe in the so-called X factor uh, in the room. Um, but now I have come to appreciate that there is a karma that gets created by um, knowing that there is a rapport, there is a relationship. Every team member knows what the procedure is all about. They can anticipate the next step. That allows them to focus on what is at hand with much more ease and relaxation. If, if you introduce a new person into the team, that disrupts that harmony. And that is something that we as surgeons don't think about. Sport is different. Um, again, I keep using the sport analogy. Um, I'm sure that, for example, you know of Antonio Brown, the so-called um, uh, one of the best receivers in the NFL and was just traded to the Patriots. Patriots did not play him, and they don't plan on playing him next week. Uh, and again, it has to do with harmony. The coach knows that he doesn't want to disturb the harmony of the, uh, the team members, even though he's presumably the best receiver, one of the best in the NFL. Um, again, the same goes in the team concept um, of the surgical team uh, that is helping me in the robotic suite. Everybody has a role. Everybody knows what I want. Everybody knows that they are there to serve the patient. And I think one, you know, if, if that is dis disrupted or disturbed, that can have a negative impact, at least on me. Maybe some physicians are not aware of it, but I think it's, it's a huge, huge part. And again, it's not only robot, it's cardiovascular, it's any surgical practice. Um, and I think it is much more tangible when it comes to robot because the robot, again, so many moving parts, too many towers, too many cables, too many instruments. Um, you don't want to introduce somebody in there that is not fully, fully familiar uh, with uh, ins and outs of uh, every single step. We have come to the point that we can anticipate with a matter of minutes when we exit the room. It's very interesting. Um, and the, the, the tone changes toward, from the beginning to the mid part of the surgery toward the end. Um, so that's all I have to say. It's very, you know, I, I think it's something, you know, I haven't heard anybody talk about this, but um, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to, for surgeons and for anybody else who might be interested in the operations of the robotic room to pay attention to. Well, thank you, Dr. Gomi. That is a very, very holistic vision that you've just laid out, and it's uh, something that integrates so many different components. We, we've described robotic surgery as a team sport, but I think you've gone way beyond that, and you've integrated all of these different components into one, again, holistic vision relative to what robotics uh, is at its advanced level. Uh, let's wrap up with uh, one final visionary question, since we've been talking very visionary over the past 15 minutes or so. What do you think the future of robotic surgery looks like over the next 10 years or so with the introduction of artificial intelligence and more and more advanced technology? 
Well, you know, it almost becomes sci-fi. You know, are we going to get to a point where the robots can perform the surgery? And uh, the answer, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think it'll take a long, long time before we get to that point. But I think we're going to go through a transition period where, just like aviation, there's an autopilot that the, the uh, pilot takes off and the uh, the softwares and automation carries the plane and uh, the pilots take the control during the landing process. The same thing may happen in surgery, but I don't think it might happen anytime soon. I think the big limitation is the cost of these machineries. As long as the cost is relatively steep and every healthcare system has one or two or three and they have 20 or 30 suites in the OR, I don't see a huge leap forward. Um, but I think when time comes to a point where adaptation, you know, adoption of technology from a cost standpoint becomes more economical, then I can see um, a robot in every single room with or without AI um, that would replace the remaining uh, laparoscopic technology. I truly believe that the laparoscopy is an inferior platform. Um, just because the shakes and the fact that you got to stand and you got to look at a uh, flat screen about three feet away, even if some people put visors on, I just don't feel like uh, it's futuristic. Um, so anything that would lessen the amount of mechanical fatigue on the surgeon, uh, I think would be futuristic and would be advantageous for years to come. Um, obviously, AI is going to have a big role, um, and the instruments are going to continue to get better. Technology is going to continue to get better. Um, so it's just it's it's uh, it's inevitable, Josh. It's going to come. It's just a matter of when. Thank you. Sure. We've been speaking with Dr. Ali Gomi, the Director of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic and Robotic Surgery at Sisters of Charity Hospital in Buffalo, New York. You've been listening to Robotic Disclosure. Robotic Disclosure is produced by Kava Robotics International, helping hospitals create profitable, high-quality, best-practice robotic programs in the U.S. and around the world since 2011. Visit kava-robotics.com.